Well, hi, my name is BJ. I'm a staff pastor here. Um, clearly, you can probably tell by looking at me, mostly hang out with the youth. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a joy and an honor to, to be with the kids that you guys have raised. And um, I got to say to you parents in here, I genuinely mean this. Um, we have an incredible group of youth here that um, encourage me and um, are just incredibly respectful and uh, love love God's word and love being together and encouraging each other. And it's such a joy for me to do it every week. So um, for you parents, very well done. It's, uh, it's a joy to be around your kids. I'm not saying they're perfect. <laughs> you know that. But it's genuinely a joy to be around them. So um, this morning before Mike comes up and, um, and teaches, I'm just going to read uh, this passage over you. If, there, if you're somebody who likes to flip to the passage, I'm going to actually encourage you to just listen to the word, be read over you. You probably won't have time to flip here anyways, but if you want to reference and check me later, um, I'm going to read from 1 John 4, 7 through 11 this morning, but I encourage you just to listen to God's word read over you. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is God's word. Hello again. Good to see you guys. Once more. <laughs> I always say hello in the same way. I don't know. It just seems jovial and the right thing to do, but I realize I've already said it, so moving on. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, and yes, we are entering really a whole new section. Um, you could break down the Gospel of Mark really into three key sections, but this one, already contained in the final week of Jesus' life, is really a, a pivot, if you will, of intensity. Um, and, and for those of you who are familiar with the Gospel story, you know that as we begin Mark chapter 14, that the cross is really starting to come into view. Um, it's starting to loom bigger and bigger. The situations are getting more um, intense. And here in the midweek for Jesus, at the beginning of Mark chapter 14, likely on Wednesday, before Passover, this chapter opens with a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and, and it's starting to reach its climax. Jesus has had conflict with the religious leaders uh, since chapter 3. And so that's just been a recurring situation for him. But now this is going to take an even more serious turn because plotting is going to be happening. There's going to be plans that are made and situations are being discussed. How do we trap this man? How do we capture him and kill him and not cause a big uproar with it? To think about the plans that are going on inside the religious leaders' minds at this point to put Jesus to death and how much they're having to consider it, think about it, and discuss it. It's shocking if you really think about it. Their desires to be rid of him are about to take an even darker turn. 
their pride, their envy, greed, selfish ambition. They're going to lead them down a path that's going to give them the opportunity to murder the king of glory. If you think about that phrase, they're seeking opportunity to murder the king of glory. It's just a rattling thing to have to think about. In Henry VIII, Shakespeare makes Wolsey say to Cromwell, Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambition. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his maker, hope to win by it? Fling away ambition. And I love the context of that statement within Henry VIII, the play, that human beings are made in God's image. That being made in God's image then, selfish ambition is against the way God created us. <laughs> I'm opening real soft today. Um, selfish ambition is against the way God created us to be. Our ambition should always be for the furthering of God's kingdom, the furthering of God's glory, shouldn't it? That's what we were created to do as image bearers. We're to reflect and show the world the goodness and the glory and the wonder of our God. And so when selfish ambition lives inside of us, it's only going to lead to bad things. It's only going to lead to us attempting to steal the glory away from God. When our ambition is to reflect and bear our maker's image, Here's what happens for us, church. We will do lovely things to honor our Lord and one another. Now, I know a lot of guys in this room probably don't want to use the word lovely, but I hope that you get more comfortable with it. Because <laughs> we should desire, no matter who we are, where we are, as human beings, we should desire to do lovely things to honor the Lord and honor each other. Because that's the outpouring of Christ in you who is the hope of glory, amen? It's that lovely response it's that loving response that becomes extravagant and almost becomes odd or questioned by the world because it may even go beyond what logically makes sense. Isn't that, after all, the way that Jesus lived? He didn't live a life that the world would have looked at and said, that makes logical sense. It's not that he wasn't logical. It's that logic didn't rule him because he was extravagant in love and grace. He was extravagant in sacrifice. He went beyond what made sense to the world to save the world from their sin. And if you want to rightly reflect God as much as I do, we have to come together in this and say, what can we do to show the love of our God through, his, through extravagant means if necessary? Whatever it takes to show this world that God loves them, cares about them, died for them, what do they need to see in me so that they can see him? Our text this morning is very intentionally laid out for us. This is why I'm making this huge emphasis. We have one of the most beautiful stories in the gospel accounts that we get to read together today. We get to talk about the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. We get to talk about this moment where Mary came before Jesus and she does something so extravagant and so lovely that even the ones who are with him and love him are like, what is happening right now? And what's amazing about this is that what is happening here in Mark chapter 14, if you read the other gospel accounts, you realize is not chronological. And what that means for us is that what begins in chapter 14 is Wednesday, middle of the week before Passover. But when the situation, when it shifts to Mary there in Bethany, anointing Jesus, it's actually going back to six days prior to Passover. 
Why would Mark do that? Well, we'll talk about that. I'm not going to give it away yet. I got to keep you here. Here's the thing, you guys. This is very intentionally organized by Mark to make a point. He's valuing theological emphasis over chronological linear. And so this is really a powerful thing to see. I'm so excited for us to go through this together. Um, What he wants to show us as we look at this, as we go through this text together, Mark intends to show us the vast contrast between selfish ambition and loving sacrifice. Here's what selfish ambition looks like, and here's what loving sacrifice looks like. And here's someone who reflected that really well right before Jesus went to the cross. Are you ready? Cool, I am. Mark chapter 14, let's read the first two verses, and we're going to take this as the sections come. So we'll read the first two verses, we'll break those down, and we'll go section by section, going all the way through verse 11 together. Mark begins his record in chapter 14, verse 1, this way. We'll read the first two. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said so that there won't be a riot among the people. Uh, There were three feasts that all adult males in Israel had to attend if they lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem. There were three feasts that they had to be present for. And I'd love to quiz you guys. I'll just give them to you, okay? And most, most, I don't know, many of you probably know them already. It was Passover, it was Pentecost, and it was Tabernacles. Those are the three feasts that they had to be present for. If you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you had to be there. If you were a guy, you had to be present there at the temple. Passover would be considered the big one, and some considered it to have a double significance because it had a historical weight behind it, but it also had an agricultural weight behind it. So the historical weight many of us are familiar with is it commemorates the deliverance of the Hebrews from the slavery in Egypt When the angel of death had come, he passed over them because of the blood of the lamb that they had been instructed to smear on their doorposts. This was powerful symbolism of what Jesus was going to do. I would love to get into that, but we don't have time this morning. But Passover is this amazing commemoration of the children of Israel, Hebrews, living in the land of Goshen, being spared the death of their firstborn because of the blood that was smeared on their doorposts and around their doorways at the very end of the ten plagues of Egypt. And it was then after that final plague that they were liberated by God to go and to possess the promised land. And oh, the adventures they had along the way. For more on that, read the Torah. But you guys, there was an agricultural significance to this as well. There's an agricultural significance to Passover because it marked the gathering of the barley harvest. And on the day, on that day, a sheaf of barley had to be waved before the Lord. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. A sheaf of barley would be waved in front of the Lord, and not till after that had been done could the barley of the new crop be sold in the shops or bread made with the new flour be eaten. This was part of the Passover. It happened right in the same time period. Thus, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed for seven days after would be the beginning of the sale of that year's crop. And after the seven days of unleavened bread, you could again eat bread made with that new flour. 
And so this marked a significant remembrance historically and also a significant agricultural moment. And, and, and I'm setting this up, okay? So don't, don't think like, wow, that's fascinating. Was this? Trust me, it matters. So Jerusalem at this time would be a very full city. It'd be a very packed place to be. A passage that the Jewish historian Josephus writes about gives us an idea of how many pilgrims actually came. He tells that Cestius, who was the governor of Palestine around about AD 65, wow, that phone came all the way forward to here. AD 65 had some difficulty in persuading Nero about the great importance of the, importance of the Jewish religion. Cestius was having a hard time explaining to Nero why it mattered so much. And so to impress him, he asked the high priest at that time to take a census of the lambs that were slain at Passover in one year. That number was 256,500. 256,000 lambs were slain at Passover that year. Uh, Josephus actually goes on to talk about how those lambs, if you read in history, were actually brought into Jerusalem a week ahead of time. Some scholars have pointed out that when Jesus rode down the Palm Sunday road, it was likely amidst a bunch of lambs who were being brought into town. I don't have, like, absolute proof of that, but can you picture that? The Lamb of God coming down the Palm Sunday road into Jerusalem amidst lambs who were coming to be slain? Ooh, that's just rattling. When you think about how many people would have to be present... When you think about how many people would have to be in Jerusalem for that many lambs to be sacrificed, one lamb could go for as a, up to 10 people. And I saw numbers. I saw so many figures of like, Jerusalem probably had about 50,000 extra people. And I heard some say they had 3 million extra people. And they really did vary that wide. I was like, okay, you don't know. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of people. <laughs> like, whenever you see numbers ranging that far, you're like, okay, just feel like you're stabbing at anything you can grab. You're like, there was a lot. It was a crowded place, okay? Jerusalem is a packed place, hence the religious leader's attitude and mindset. That's why all of this is here. All that information points us to understand they're very concerned. There's a lot of out-of-towners here. Where did Jesus do the majority of his ministry? Outside of Jerusalem. Mostly in the northern region, up by Galilee. And so there's a lot of people here who are probably very supportive of him who have enjoyed his ministry, have seen people healed. They've, they've heard the stories. They've witnessed. I mean, how many people were there present for Passover who actually ate some of the bread at the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, this isn't a large region. This is very likely that there's people there. And so the religious leaders have to be very, very careful. Why? Because they're not in charge of Jerusalem. Rome is. And a riot with the Romans around was a really bad idea. And if people are mad, they're not thinking very clearly, but the religious leaders are saying, if there's going to be a riot, there will be punishment. There's going to be a, a punishment for that kind of activity when the Romans are in charge. Now, not wanting to risk the riot and knowing this, that at Passover, you can actually read about this in history as well, the Romans would actually send an extra contingent of soldiers and store them up in the Antonia Fortress. They would be there on the Temple Mount on the Antonio Fortress just in case there was an uprising during the festival. Do you think they wanted to be there? That wasn't their base of operations. They didn't want to be there. Where do Roman soldiers want to be? They want to be in Rome. 
But they get sent there because these Jewish people keep having these uprisings, so they have to go and stay at the feast there in the fortress, agitated, bothered, and Jesus is about to be brought to them, handed over to them. Now you understand why they treat him the way they did. They didn't want to be there. They're angry about being there, sick of the uprisings, and now they get to take it out on somebody who claims to be their king. There's a lot of logistics around this. There's a lot of things that just make sense about why things happened the way they did in this last week of Jesus' life. And as you look at these verses, don't just skip by. This makes sense that they're being very cunning about how they're going to take him. And notice what they say in verse 2, not during the festival so that there won't be a riot amongst the people. When did they take Jesus? They take him at night, and they take him during the festival. It's actually happening. First of all, because God had ordained it. They can't control that. Second of all, they didn't realize they had a, a conspirator. They don't know yet that they have a betrayer in the midst. We're going to find that out on the other side. And so here, looking at this situation, you could just feel the clouds starting to loom. And don't forget, this is the thing that Jesus said, I'm coming here for this. This is why I've come. He told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to be put to death in Jerusalem, and on the third day, I will rise. Jesus knows this is coming. But not willing to risk arresting and killing Jesus during the festival, at least initially, they're plotting otherwise, but something changes that plan. And that is the other side of the story that we're about to look at. So you have the religious leaders plotting, and then on the other side, we're going to talk about Judas. But here in the middle, Mark takes something that happened a few days earlier and sets it in between them to show us a very important contrast, a very important difference in what it looks like for us to worship Jesus. So here he goes back to Bethany. John's gospel in John chapter 12, verse 1 will say this is six days prior. But Mark records it and inserts it here. It says, while he was at Bethany, this is verse 3 of chapter 14, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her fulfillment of prophecy right here i love the placement of this i love that this isn't a discrepancy at all i love that mark is favoring theological emphasis more than chronology that more than flowing in a linear fashion which if you know me you know i'm a very linear person um, he's inserting something that matters because of what it teaches and what it teaches us about jesus a real story that's happened already here, sandwiched in between the hatred of the religious leaders and the betrayal of Judas, we have the love and the devotion 
of a dear woman who we know is Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She's the one who does this for Jesus. And so Mark, after explaining the cunning and the murderous intent of the religious leaders, which he'll return to in verse 5, inserts this beautiful story that takes place at Simon's house. And notice Simon was what? He's a leper. Why is everyone there? He's a leper. Immediately everyone's like, wait, they're at Simon the leper's? We should put formerly Simon the leper. Because Jesus would have been the only one there, according to tradition, if he was still a leper. It's very likely, and I would say almost absolute, that Simon has been healed by Jesus. That Simon's leprosy has been healed. That's why there's a whole group of people there now. They can come to Simon's house, so he hosts this dinner. And he invites them, and there, the three siblings who we know Jesus is very close with, who also live in the region of Bethany, are at Simon's, having dinner with Jesus. I love this reclining at table idea. We, you know, we should really adopt this for our next meal together as a church family. Instead of chairs, just a cushion. Lean on the left, eat with the right. That's what they would do. That's exactly what they would do. You would lean on your left side because most are right-handed, right? You're like, I'm a lefty. Well, we just find a place for you. I don't know where, but like, but you lean on your left side and you would eat with your right hand. And so that's why it says when they were reclining at table, you're like, how does that work? Well, in Jewish tradition, that's how they ate. Sounds great. I'd love to lay down and eat. That sounds wonderful. So Jesus is reclining at table. He's sitting there. He's eating. And Mary comes, and she anoints him with perfume. Now, this is really important. This is really important. It was custom at this time to pour a few drops of perfume on a guest when he arrived at the house and when he had sat down to eat. It was customary to do something like this, where you put a couple drops on them, and it's just a way to anoint them and, and to be a blessing to them and welcome them into your home. But instead of pouring a few drops, Mary breaks the jar, and she empties its contents on Jesus' head. She empties this very expensive alabaster jar, which if you know alabaster and you look at it traditionally, it would be a jar that had a really long, thin neck. And likely, the only way to open it would be to break it. It was probably sealed completely without a, any kind of a cork or anything like that, and it was something you had to break to open. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you had to use it all, but breaking it released its contents. And obviously, this type of perfume that was very, I mean, if you look at just nard and where these types of ideas would draw from in perfumes, it's probably from India somewhere. This is a very expensive thing to do. We're told about that in the text, and I'll get to that in a second. But the fragrance would have absolutely filled the house. The fragrance of what she's doing, you wouldn't have been able to hide it, right? It wasn't subtle, what she's doing. And Mary completely empties this expensive perfume on Jesus. And there's two reactions in the room. There's two reactions in the room when she does this. The first that is pointed out to us is the indignance of the disciples. They are indignant. If you want to know what indignant means, it means anger that's aroused by something unjust or something unworthy. That's what indignation comes from. This isn't right. And you see that in their explanation. This shouldn't have happened. This is wrong. It wasn't even in question like, should we really have done, should she have done that? There's no questions being asked. There's immediate indignation over that should not have been done. This is very wrong. And that's the disciples' reaction. 
We'll look at that a little bit closer in a minute. But the other response in the room is that of Jesus, and it is affectionate gratitude. Jesus is affectionately grateful for what Mary does. He postures not only himself in defense of her actions, but says that what she has done is beautiful. The ESV renders verse 6 this way, she has done a beautiful thing to me. That's a better reading than noble. If we look at noble, and we actually look at the word, I'll get into it in a second. When you look at that word, that doesn't mean noble as in noble. That's not what he's talking about. It's a beautiful thing. There's something lovely about this. So let's look at the two reactions in the text. Look at the text carefully. Verse 4 says, But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume, notice this, been wasted? Key in on that word. Why has this been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they just start to scold her for what she's doing. A denarii was a silver Roman coin, and it was customary in that time that a day's wages was a denarii. That's what you got for a day's wages. That was, I guess, would you say the medium wage. And so 300 denarii, with our quick mathematical skills, means that this is about a year's worth of wages. She just poured out a year's worth of wages onto Jesus. And Matthew identifies in that moment as this is happening, this extravagant outpouring, that the, the disciples, the ones who are indignant, are, is the whole group. He also says the disciples, as Mark does here. John implicates Judas directly. He says, Judas was saying this. Now, I think that likely if you put all those accounts together, you can say all of them were bothered, all of them were against it, but I would say that Judas was being the loudest about it. No wonder Mark puts this here just before the betrayal of Judas. I think there's a connection there. This bothers him in a really specific way. It hits him in a nerve. I'll get to that in a minute, too. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm so tempted. I'm so tempted to get ahead of myself. So they, Mark uses the plural they, begin to scold her, the disciples. The mention of the poor is natural. Um, not only because it's consistent with what Jesus has taught, it's consistent with Old Testament scripture, but this is for the did you know category. Did you know that the Jews, it was a custom for them to give gifts to the poor on the evening of Passover? They were very mindful of the poor at Passover. They would give gifts to them on the evening of the Passover. It was a way to bless them as a part of the festival. And so when they're like, that should have been given to the poor. Their minds were already thinking that direction because they're within a week of Passover. And so, isn't it interesting how sometimes when something bothers us, that shouldn't, but when something bothers us, that we immediately try to find something tangible to justify it with? Oh, well, it's about time to give this to the poor. Oh, I can't do that because, oh, that fits, because this is why, right? We look for reasons to justify our reaction to something. And that's where we need to take a step back, church. We need to take a step back and think, what does Jesus think about this? This is bothering me, but is it bothering him? I'm disapproving of this, but does Jesus disapprove of this? That's why we ought to know the scriptures really, really well. Spend the rest of our lives working on that. But how many times do we lean towards our natural tendencies, our logical process, and forget that our Savior extravagantly gave his life for us? 
that nothing that I can give will ever come close to equaling his sacrifice for me. So every sacrifice or every extravagant gift that I give to him is just an outpouring of his own character that's in me. It's just an outpouring and a reflection of who he is. I'm bearing his image in that way. This is a beautiful thing that she's done. Extravagantly, we are to give back. It's beautiful when someone does that, and that ought to never create indignation within us or even guilt. I think sometimes we could feel guilty, too. I haven't done that. Listen, if the Lord leads you to do it, listen to that. But if somebody else does it, don't feel guilty. Let them give. Celebrate their gift. Lift them up. That was wonderful. That was beautiful. I loved it. Affirm them. A true act of worship is not intended to shame others around us or inspire jealousy or envy. A true act of worship is for the Lord. It's for God. It's not about people around us. Now, the body around us sees us doing good works and gives glory to our Father in heaven. That's wonderful. But I'm not doing it so that other people will think well of me. I'm doing it so that Jesus will be blessed. Because the Spirit's talking on my heart to do something. I, I need to do this for him. Only, only what Jesus thinks truly matters. And what does Jesus think about what Mary's done? In the text, if we believe that only, the only opinion here that truly matters is what Jesus says, because he's in the room. What is Jesus doing? Jesus replies, leave her alone. Verse 6, why are you bothering her? She's done a noble or beautiful thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. This is a very special time. This is a special moment. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's important. I want to make an emphasis on this word noble because I think that the ESV, as I said before, really gets it right when it translates it beautiful. In the Greek, there are two words for good. Okay, in the Greek, there are two words for good. There is agathos, which describes a thing which is morally good, and there is kalos, which describes a thing which is not only good, but it's lovely. It's not just a good thing to do morally, it's a beautiful thing. It's good and lovely. A thing might be agathos and yet be hard, stern, even unattractive, but a thing which is kalos is captivating and lovely. It has a bloom of charm upon it. Kalos means something that is fine and attractive, and that's exactly the word that Jesus uses that's rendered beautiful here. It's rendered good in some texts, but in CSB it's rendered noble, in ESV it's re rendered beautiful, but the word behind it is kalos. There's a loveliness to this. There's an attractiveness to this. This is like the difference of looking at something and being like, you screw a piece of wood into another wood, and you go, that looks good. And if you're a guy, you go, that's not going anywhere. Because <laughs> you have to, right? Every time. Because that means it's not going anywhere. Right? Now, is that good if that piece of wood needed to be there and you, you attach it and you go, that looks good, right? Now, when you look at a flower, would you ever look and go, that looks good? That's not going anywhere, <laughs> right? When I look at a flower and go, that's good, right? I'm implying something else. 
It's beautiful. There's a loveliness to it. There's an attractiveness to it. Even a fragrance. Now think about Mary, what she's done. It's not only a beautiful act, but the fragrance is there. It was filling the room. Love does not only do good things. Love does lovely things. Love doesn't just do what's right. Love will be extravagant and do lovely things. Isn't that true of love? That there's an extravagance to it? Let's face it. When you got together with your gal, guys, and the other, gal, other guys looked at you, did you make much sense? No way. Why? Because anything I can do for this doe, this deer, this female deer. <laughs> She's like a ray of drop of golden sun. No, but like if you... If that's, if that, I know, we're all going to start singing it together. <laughs> Call myself. No, but you guys, there's an extravagance. There's this abandonment of logic for the sake of demonstrating my affection for you. Right? There's an extravagance to it. True love gives us a desire to bless and give beyond what makes common sense. It's not concerned with utility. It's an expression of adoration and care and devotion. And it means something, doesn't it? When you give, something, give to somebody in that way, they're like, why did you do that? And you're like, just, I, I, I love you. I did it because I love you. I know it defies logic. And it might put us in the financial hole for a while. But, it, but I love you. Right? Love goes beyond doing the practical. Love will lead us to be extravagant. And I just, I, I, I'm not saying <laughs> go buy something you can't afford. That's not what I'm saying. You can love someone in different ways. But do you realize that that's a reflection of the extravagant love of Jesus? That he gave everything he had? I'll get to that in a moment, too. I got to speed up. You guys... I love this, <laughs> love. I really love looking at this and talking about this because it's just this reminder of, of us not throwing ourselves into autopilot, of not just doing the practical things, of not just doing what makes sense all the time, of really looking and saying, Lord, lead me and lead me to do things that might not make a lot of sense for other people, but you know what? This makes a lot of sense to you, and it matters for your namesake and for your glory. This is how I ought to love. And Jesus says this, he's really practical about it. He is in no way discounting ministering to the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 11 says that the poor will never cease. There he says, for there will never cease to be, as Moses records, as poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus expresses the importance of the needs of the poor. So we can't discount that. It matters all the time. Matthew 5, 6, 19, Luke 6, 21, John 13. All those passages, you're like, that's too fast. You can go back. It's on Facebook and YouTube shortly. You can like, listen back and be like, all right, I'm writing all these down. I'm going to check them. They're there. All these are references of Jesus saying he cares about the poor. And because he cares for those in need, we ought to care for those in need. But what's happening here, I would describe in this way. Caring for those in need is the city that we live in, so to speak. We should live in a place where we are constantly looking to care for the needs of those who are hurting around us. Then loving expression that is extravagant becomes like this unique place that we visit, that we love to visit, right? You, like to, you have your favorite places around, I hope. Places you love to go visit, places you travel to. You can't live there, probably can't afford to live there, but 
it's, it's that place where you're like, oh, I love going there. I just, it's such a blessing. I love being there with people I care about. That's what extravagant acts of love are. But loving the poor and caring for the poor, that's an everyday thing. That's, not, that's the city we live in, if that makes sense. Those extravagant expressions of love are like visiting a beautiful town. And we do that as often as we're able, but that's not where we live. One of, the, one of these things does not discount the other. We don't discount the poor to be extravagant. We care for them continually, but it doesn't mean that we don't do things that are extravagant as well. They're complementary to each other, and Jesus says of Mary that she's done something even more significant than just blessing him, and Jesus reveals an even deeper truth. He says, she's preparing my body for burial. Now, whether Mary had caught on to that, it's interesting. If you go back in the Gospels, it, it notes that Mary is a very good listener. Do you wonder if she caught on to something that the disciples were just not catching? And that Jesus, she actually believed him that he was there to die. And so she wanted to do something extravagant to bless him and to prepare his body. It's possible. It's possible. Notice that he uses in that same sentence almost identical language to what he used of the widow who gave her two mites back in chapter 12, which we've already studied. In uh, verse 8 of chapter 14, she has done what she could. It's almost identical language to chapter 12, verse 44, at the end of that verse. But she, out of her poverty, speaking of the widow, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. When it says she has done all, or she has done what she could, and of the widow, all she had to live on, the sentence structure there is almost identical. It's almost like this picture that Mary gave all that she had, the very best of what she had. Jesus teaches in both situations that these women have given with abandon, and it's beautiful to him. Both have expressed true worship through actions. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. There's one more thing about this before we move into the final section, and we'll go quickly there. Notice the absolute confidence of Jesus in that statement in verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, where? In the whole world. The gospel message is not the gospel message without the resurrection. Jesus is completely confident that not only is he going to the cross, that he will rise again, and that that gospel message, that truth, will be preached to the whole world. It's going to go forth. It's already done. It's already accomplished. Absolute confidence. He knows that the Father is going to be faithful as he submits himself to him. And I think that that confidence gets passed on to us, that he who died for the sins of the world is able to save us and to save us into eternity with himself. Amen? His confidence is passed on to us. And we can hold fast to that. That is our hope. Mark situates this story in between the two narratives, and now we return to the religious leaders. Look at verse 10. Then, after this story is told, he says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. 
I don't think they saw this coming. If you look at the language and you look at the different gospel accounts, I don't think that the religious leaders saw Judas coming, that they knew that they were going to have someone on the inside. But the motivation for Judas betraying Jesus has been speculated upon by many over the centuries. None of the gospel writers give us a real detailed account of it, though. None of them really expound on why Judas is doing this. There's little hints along the way. They all affirm his betrayal, but none of them give us a clear, distinct answer as to why. The hints along the way is that we're told by John that he was stealing from the money bag. That Judas had, he was like the, the group treasurer and that he was regularly stealing from the bag. And actually, John tells us that in John chapter 12, where this story is told, he was upset about the alabaster jar being broken and not sold to be given to the poor because he would have gotten a cut. He would have taken some from it. John said he was a thief. We have some statements by Judas that would lead us to think of his greed and his jealousy, maybe even disappointment as to how the mission of Jesus is playing out. Whatever the reason, Judas provides the opportunity for the religious leaders to change their original plan and take a risk during the festival. They wanted Judas to hand him over an opportune moment. They wanted to do it when there weren't people around, and somebody said it out loud a little bit ago. That's why they did it at night. They did it when there weren't any crowds around. They got him into custody when there wasn't a crowd to riot. No matter what the central reason for why Judas did this, Judas was willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30. The alabaster jar was worth 300 denarii. We start to look at that contrast of what Judas did as opposed to what Mary was willing to do. Matthew 26, 14 through 15 reveals this even deeper about Judas. It says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. Notice the context. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? He's bargaining. He's bargaining with Jesus' life. We're reminded in this, you guys, that the desire for money, greed, selfish gain can make people blind to decency, honesty, honor. Judas discovered too late that some things cost too much. He discovered way too late. Love of personal gain tramples on the love and all the lovely things that are done for others at the cost of oneself. No wonder Judas was disgusted with Mary's extravagance towards Jesus. It was the polar opposite of how he felt. No wonder Mark wants us to see these two contrasted with each other. By situating them side by side, we can clearly see what beautiful and lovely is and what treacherous is. We can see these so clearly when they stand against each other. And doesn't it make you want to immediately go, Lord, I want to give, I want to, give to you. I love you. I want to express that. That should give us this great desire to express ourselves to him. I just want him to know. It's like, well, he knows my heart. Yeah, but I want to say it. My wife knows that I love her, but how much does it matter that I say it out loud? How often is it a blessing both to me and to people around me when we express our affection for each other? You guys, we ought to be very expressive. Let's express our love and our care for one another. It matters. In reality, by, by looking at these stories, we realize that Judas attached himself to Jesus, not so much to become a follower as to use Jesus to work out the plans and desires of his own ambitious heart. He was using Jesus to get what he wanted. That never ends well. Because he is the king. 
He is the Savior. He is God. So far from surrendering to Jesus, Judas wanted Jesus to surrender to him. But not Mary. She just wanted to express extravagantly how much she loved him. She just simplistically came with all that she had and poured it out upon him. Church, let us be the same way. Let us be those who draw near to the Lord and just say, I just want to bless you. I just want to give. I recognize that everything I have is yours anyway, and I want to pour it out at your feet. I want to pour it out on your head. May it be a blessing to you. May it glorify you. May it draw attention to you. Worship team, can you come on up? Notice this. As much as Judas wanted Jesus to surrender to him, his ideals, for whatever reasoning, Jesus took his own way, didn't he? Jesus took his own way. Jesus did things the way that the Father had called him to do them, the way of the cross. And in route, knowing that Judas would betray him, what did Jesus do? In this week that we're studying here in Mark 14, we read about it extensively in the upper room in John chapter 13. As Jesus comes, he gathers the disciples together, and before Judas can leave to go arrange for his betrayal that evening, what does Jesus do for Judas? He washes his feet. He takes the lowliest position in the house, and he washes the feet of his betrayer. If you want the heart of Jesus, that's what we're looking for. Lord, enable me to wash the feet of those who may consider themselves to be their great, my greatest enemy or against me in some way. Lord, show me how to serve them, how to bless them, even though Jesus knew what Judas was up to. That's why at the dinner table, he looked at Judas and said, what you're going to do, you need to do. That very night, that Judas betrayed him, Jesus washed his feet. What a loving Savior. What a King who's worth breaking open the most precious gift that we possess and anointing him with every last drop of it to honor him, to express our love and our devotion that we have for him. He is worthy of all of it. And you know what's amazing? He doesn't require it of us, does he? He's here with us. He's our friend. He speaks to us. But when we truly love someone, how can we stop ourselves from expressing? How can we stop ourselves from showing that affection? Jesus demonstrated the great love of the Father for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the greatest demonstration of his love. All the acts, all the things that he did, he could not have demonstrated his love for us any clearer, the love of the Father for us any clearer than dying on the cross. And this morning, we're going to take communion together. And I want us to realize that we get to celebrate communion because we are brought together into one body and one family by that loving sacrifice of Jesus. It's what he called his disciples' attention to there in the upper room. And he said, this bread represents my body 
that's going to be broken for you. And as often as you eat it, I want you to remember, meaning that I want you to be bound together by this in remembrance. Remembrance in the Jewish mindset is not like remember as if you forgot something happened. They would never forget. He's talking about you are bringing the power of this act into the present. You are remembering that God's strength, his power, his spirit is here and is alive and has unified us and is working in us as his church. That's what communion is about. It's a new covenant. It's a new family. Here we are, the church, almost 2,000 years later, continuing the work of Jesus until he returns. And we are here because of the power of his spirit that he has placed in us and the power of his salvation that he extravagantly lavished upon us. Isn't that amazing what he's done through his sacrifice? So that's what we're going to remember this morning. So as the elements are distributed for communion, we're going to sing, we're going to worship, hold on to them, we'll take them together, and then we'll close our time in worship with him. But let's just take a moment and let's sing and let's praise him before we take communion together.